The way to perfection is narrow and steep. The bypaths are many, the pitfalls are deep. By theory alone, many think to arrive. Here's one who could teach them if he were alive. <laughs> a philosopher stepped into a boat, the river to cross would he. So learned was he, he thought no man could be half so clever as he. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. To the boatman he said, Good man, pray tell of the German philosophers three, Schopenhauer, Hegel, and Weitikant, whom you deem the wisest to be. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Please excuse me, sir, the boatman said, I've not read your philosophers three. All day I'm obliged to ply these oars to support my family and me. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. In that case, my good man, your wretched life is as good as a quarter lost. Why, without the writings of those three men, not a shelf of books would I trust. Please join us in singing. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Now then tell me, good man, the scholar said, have you studied the Frenchman Descartes? I've told you before, the other cried, I'm unschooled, hard work is my art. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Hard work, what a waste, sad foolish man. Half your life has been thrown away. Yet still a fragment might be redeemed. Memorize one theory a day. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Of a sudden a storm with raging might did lash that river to foam. Like a drifting pedal it tossed their boat till it seemed they'd never get home. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Then the boatman cried, my learned sir, our chances are growing dim. Two questions you've put me so far this trip. Now I'll ask you one, can you swim? <laughs> Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. I cut some a stroke, the philosopher cried, as he clung in despair to an oar. <laughs> then the whole of your life is lost, my friend. You'll not need those books anymore. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. Singing wise, oh, with his book so, such a mighty scholar was he. The boatman regrets to say his fare, never reached the opposite bank. 
All that ponderous learning inside his head gave him weight, you see, and he sang. Singing wise, oh, with his books, so oh, such a weighty scholar was he. Singing wise, oh, with his books, so oh, such a weighty scholar was he. La 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 And for Rays of the One Light, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. An endlessly fascinating question is, why did Judas fall after receiving an extraordinary blessing of being accept, accepted into the inner circle of Jesus Christ's disciples? For Judas was one of the 12 apostles, yet he betrayed Jesus and earned for himself the opprobrium of the Christendom of all futurity for his sin. We find Judas reprimanding Jesus just days before that betray. Jesus, aware that his disciples would soon be facing with his death, the supreme tragedy of their lives allowed Mary to express her devotion by anointing his feet with costly ointment. This act of wanton waste, as Judas saw it, awakened indignation in that disciple. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and give them to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and kept the purse and bare what was put in therein. Then Jesus said, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Doubt not, doubt not the power of delusion, respect it. Indeed, fear it, though not in the sense of cowering before it. For as Yogananda said, one is not safe until he obtains Nirvikalpa Samadhi, the state of final union with God. Judas, through attachment to money, opened his consciousness to subtle influences, which may be called satanic. That drew his thoughts towards other related attitudes, the importance of worldly power, for instance, and the worldly influence. The Bhagavad Gita gives a graphic explanation of how easily the mind can be drawn downward once it begins to feed on wrong attitudes. In the second chapter, Krishna, Sri Krishna states, if one ponders on sense objects, there springs up attraction to them. From attraction grows desire. Desire impatiently for fulfillment flames to anger. From anger, there arises infatuation, the delusion that one object can alone is worth clinging to, to the exclusion of all others. From infatuation ensues forgetfulness of the higher self. From the forgetfulness of the self follow the degeneration of the discriminative faculty. And when discrimination is lost, there follows the annihilation of one's spiritual life. At the first thought of delusion, Paramahansa Yogananda said, 
that is the time to stop it. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Pleasure to be here and share a Sunday service with you. My name is Atman. This is Bhakti Marg. I want to especially welcome all those who are here as guests and visitors at the Expanding Light, working on the transitions in your life or just coming on retreat, and also those who are sharing with us online. Let's start with a reading from Whispers from Eternity, Prayer Demands by Paramahansa Yogananda. Flood me with thy omnipresent love. O fountain of love, flood the lowlands of our love for home and family with thy omnipresent love. O mighty source of all our rivers of desire, teach us not to cut ourselves off from thee, hunting on dry sands of sense satisfaction. Love is our soul's birthright. We demand now that all rivers of our cravings be redirected through valleys of humility eager self-sacrifice and concern for others until reinforced by thy torrential blessings they merge in the ocean of all fulfillment in thee. Bless us that the rivulets of our sympathy, affection, and love lose not themselves in the sands of dreary selfishness. Let the little, lonely, separately moving streamlets of our love which come from thee merge at last in the vastness of thy perfect love. So we find ourselves in an interesting situation. Our little spark of the divine encased in ego consciousness, swimming through vast eons of time in this universe, fighting our way back to try to merge back with God. And the good news is we know how to get there. The masters have come. They've showed us the way. We know the nature of this universe, the nature of delusion what it takes to get back to oneness with thee. But, as the reading reminds us this week, it's not always an easy journey. We have the road map, but just because we have a map doesn't mean we're not going to get lost. <laughs> and in, in this week, we have to ponder some very uh, difficult truths, some difficult things to accept that it's not necessarily an easy way back. And just because we know where we're going, we may not get there. As Yogananda said, we're not safe from the fall until we reach Nirvakalpi Samadhi, until we're completely one with him, final liberation. Until that point, it's probably going to be an upward and downward journey, a few steps forward, some steps back. And we just have to accept that. We have to accept that Never underestimate the power of that delusion. I mean, that's the lesson for this week. Never underestimate. You know, we think we're cruising along, everything's going well. Don't underestimate what is gonna, you know, what's gonna come along and smack you in your face, and next thing you know, you're heading the wrong direction. And this isn't, you know, it only it doesn't apply just to us. I mean, if you look at 
uh, Yogananda's autobiography. You know, he wrote this book to entertain us, to inspire us, to uplift us, but also to instruct us. And everything that's in that book is an instruction. And he includes a number of stories about great souls who still had some flaws, who still had a ways to, you know, a delusion in them. There was the perfume saint, stain, who got stuck in the idea that, you know, what he was supposed to be doing was manifesting beautiful fragrances out of his palm. And Yogananda set him straight in the visit. And we saw the tiger swami who had great powers of focus and concentration, but he didn't turn to God till he was almost dead, beat up by his last encounter with the tiger. And then there's, of course, the great story of uh, Asfal Khan. There was this young Muslim boy who was walking one day, and he came upon a, a sadhu on the road. And the sadhu said, boy, fetch me some water. I'm very thirsty. And he said, don't you know I'm a, I'm a Muslim? You know, don't you fear for the contamination of your soul by accepting a drink from uh, someone like me? And the, the master said, oh, no, I don't, I don't prescribe to those things. It's no problem. You know, I, I like your honesty, though, so please fetch me some water. And because he did, he said, you have a mixed karma. There's, there's something in you that is pulling you down, but you also have great spiritual powers that you've gained in another, great advancements you've gained in another life. And I'm going to bestow on you a boon, and I want you to use this boon just for the good of mankind, because if you don't, it'll pull you back down. And he bestowed a yogic technique on this young man that allowed him to manifest whatever he needed, that he was connected with uh, Hazrat, this great being in the astral plane who could give him whatever he wanted. And he was also given the boon that whatever he touched would disappear and then go into his possession. So he underwent great austerities for 20 years and mastered these powers and moved out into the world. And you know, he started out by doing some good, but he became deluded. He became overcome with his sense of power that he had from these, this great boon. And he would start, he would steal things and he would go into jewelry stores and look at jewelry and then walk away and to the horror of the shopkeeper, the jewels would disappear after that. And he would go on trains with a group of his followers and he'd touch a roll of tickets. And then he'd say, oh, no, I changed my mind. And next thing you know, here are all these people with tickets getting on the train. <laughs> And this was, <laughs> I hadn't caught this before, but in the story, in the autobiography, it says uh, Yogananda's father was an was a executive in the Bengal Nagpur Railway. And he said, yes, our railway was, was preyed upon by this man. So I mean, this was real. I mean, he's, he was taking tickets. So this went on and on. And there was, of course, the story when Yukteswar was present and he played some tricks on some of the people at the dinner and he, took a man's heirloom watch and then to give it back, he ransomed it for 500 rupees and, and he provided this great feast, but clearly he was a little bit in delusion. <laughs> and so he, he had his comeuppance though, and which is the moral of why this was included in the story. He was walking later down the road and a beggar man you know, was walking along and he had uh, one valuable item on him and and uh, Hazrat, or um, Isfal, Asfal said, oh, what's that? And he touched it. And then he kept walking. And next thing you know, it disappeared. And you know, he had taken this last 
possession from this seemingly frail man, but it turned out the frail man was his guru. And he turned around and he, in a great stentorian voice, says, I see you have not followed my prescriptions. You have fallen in delusion. And at that point he realized and he spent the rest of his life in the Himalayas trying to do penance to try to come back to gain that spiritual thing. So delusion, delusion is strong. And if you look at, if we look at the 20th century, you know, spiritual teachers in the West, uh, the landscape is littered with bodies of fallen teachers and people that have succumbed to some form of delusion who have fallen into the, you know, one of the three big ones, intoxication or sex or power and money. and. It's enough to sort of give you pause. It's enough if you're uh, skeptical to say, oh, this is ridiculous. I mean, you know, nobody can really live up to these things. And, you know, all these people who hold themselves up as being great teachers, I mean, look at them. They have all these faults and they've fallen and forget it. I'm just going back to materialism. But, you know, that isn't the right attitude. And that's not what the... <laughs> That's not what these, what this teachings is telling us this week. I mean, the right attitude is, yes, you're not safe until you reach Nirvikalpi Samadhi. And it doesn't mean that all these people, just like the saints in the autobiography, weren't highly evolved great souls who happened to still have some delusion and fell into that delusion at one point. And some of them picked themselves up and moved forward. Some of them sort of dropped off the path altogether and fell out of sight. But the important thing is not to condemn them as just as we don't condemn ourselves when we fall into delusion. It's give them compassion, learn what we can learn from them, look up to them when they are offering us higher teachings and forgive them when they're, they're not able to necessarily follow that all the time. Because it's just like us. I mean, how many times are we going to fall before we reach oneness back with God? And we just have to be extremely vigilant about where we have our minds, where we have our thoughts, where are our attitudes. Are our attitudes and thoughts going inward and upward? Or are they going outward and downward? Because we have a little bit of control. We can initiate some of these things. We can put some willpower into it. But then, depending on where our thoughts are, we're taken up by a whole stream of consciousness. Thoughts are not individually rooted. They're universally rooted. And our thoughts, our attitudes create a magnetism which puts us into a stream of consciousness that is, likewise, that is like those thoughts. If we're thinking uplifting thoughts, we go into an uplifting stream. If we're more moving downward, what happens? There's a magnetism to that, to the lower chakras, and it moves us on those streams of lower consciousness, and we get swept away. You have to be careful where you're swimming. Where are you gonna get into the river? Where are you gonna stick your toe in? Because those currents are strong. And if you stick your toe in the wrong space, next thing you know, you may be swept down the river and you may not get out for another few incarnations. So you need to be very vigilant. What are our thoughts? Where am I? Who am I associating with? What am I thinking? What am I reading? Where am I going? What stream of consciousness do I want to swim in? Because am I in that vortex, like it says in the Bhagavad Gita, that's going to take me down? 
or am I in something that's going to lift me up? So the Gita reading is, I love this reading. It's like, I don't know, for some reason I'm always amazed when I read the Gita that, you know, this was written thousands of years ago. But it's like, you know, it's just us now. It's right here. I mean, it, it describes us. You know, you don't necessarily think of these people thousands of years ago having these same foibles, but of course, it's human nature. So it's good to try to put those teachings from this, this sloka into perspective and try to apply it a little to our lives. What does this really mean for us? So as you remember in the sloka, it says that pondering on the sense objects leads to attraction. The attraction leads to desire. Desire, impatient for fulfillment, flames to anger. Anger leads to infatuation, thinking that this one object is the only important thing. Infatuation leads to forgetfulness of the self. Forgetfulness of the self, you lose discriminative power, and there follows the annihilation of your spiritual life. <laughs> so what does this look like for us? Well, I could, I could, um, I just thought of, um, you can think of one thing. So I'm sitting in my office down atop Master's Market, and I'm working away, and all of a sudden there's this wonderful fragrance of baking almond cookies coming up into my office. I go, oh, that's nice. Oh, I'm sort of permeating the air. And all of a sudden I start thinking, yeah, I like almond cookies. This smells really good. Yeah, hmm, nice. And then my attraction moves to desire. I think I better go buy an almond cookie because I have to go down and, you know, I deserve one. I've been working hard. It's 1030. It's time for a break. So let's go down and get an almond cookie. I want to buy one. So I walk downstairs and Julius, the head of the market, is down there and says, Julius, I need an almond cookie. And Julius says, oh, I'm sorry, but all those cookies were ordered by Jyoti for a donor tea. And we're not selling any of those cookies today. I go, what? No cookies. And my, my impatient, my desire, impatient for fulfillment, flames to anger. What do you mean you don't have any cookies? What's the matter with this market? How come you can't have people here? You're not selling any cookies. You can't just give them to those people. And I storm back upstairs. <laughs> So I try to start working again, and what happens? I'm infatuated with the thought of the almond cookies. And I can't think of anything else. I'm going, no, I have to have these almond cookies, because now I've got, I'm all excited about this, and I, you know, I can't possibly concentrate. I have an almond cookie. <laughs> and then with my infatuation for the almond cookies, I start to lose touch with my higher self, and I start getting mad at Jyoti. I said, Jyoti, you know, she's always thinking more about these donors than, you know, like the people here. And, you know, of course, I know I should be kind, and, it's, you know, these people make Ananda possible, and it's really important, but I've lost my touch with the higher self, and all I'm thinking about is my almond cookies. So, I mean, actually, then Julius saves the day, and he comes up and said, we baked you another batch, and you can buy it. <laughs> so I say, great, okay, I'm going to buy these almond cookies. This is fantastic. 
but I want them all. <laughs> I'm buying the whole lot because I'm really afraid that if I don't have these almond cookies, this is the only thing that's really important. So I'm going to hold on to these almond cookies. I have to have them. And so I eat, start eating them. And I eat most of them. But then, OK, I better hide them because Badri's next door. And Badri's going to come. And he's going to try to steal my almond cookies. And I, I, if I don't have these almond cookies, I don't know what I can do. So I've lost the discriminative faculty of what is really important for me. I can't go to meditation because I've eaten all these cookies and because I better protect the ones that are left. And there I've annihilated my spiritual service. <laughs> So it's not always, <laughs> it's not always quite that bad or quite that straightforward. <laughs> but you can see, you get into these downward spirals of where's my energy, where am I, where's my thinking, where are my attitudes, what is it, where am I going? Am I going downward or am I going upward? And one of the other important things in this, in this story is there's a, it's not so much the sense objects, maybe, or cookies that a lot of us worry about, but there's, there's one critical delusion that Swami says is one of the hardest to, to let go of. And that's the delusion of pride, of feeling that I am attached to this ego, there's me, I am doing something, and I'm proud of that. And our, our society continually reinforces that sense of pride. I mean, we're competing against other little kids, and we're the ones who win, and they lose, and we feel good, and they feel bad, but it's always this, this individuation, this sense of, of competition, the sense of me doing it. It's not so much the group, unless, of course, you go to EFL schools where this isn't necessarily emphasized this way, which is a good thing. But, you know, we come into life with that. We come into this, this incarnation with that. And it's, it's really easy, even once we're on the spiritual path, to feel that sense of pride that, you know, we have a little realization, we have a little joy, we have a little calmness and centeredness, and we're, we get a little bit of proud of that. And it's a, it's a common thing that could happen. And of course, that's really what happened to Judas, as, as Swami in some of his uh, longer explanations of the Judas story and the promise of immortality and the, some of his other writings. He talks about that it wasn't so much that Judas was a thief and that he was just a, an evil soul. He was a very high, he said, Master said he was a prophet. But what happened? He got that sense of pride that he knew better what to do, that he knew, well, my guru has these spiritual teachings down, but you know, he doesn't really know how to act in the world. And he doesn't really know how to interact with the Pharisees, because if we really want to get this message out there, if we really want to get these teachings going, you know, we got to compromise a little bit and you know, meet the Pharisees where they are and teach them that way. And so he, you know, when he had that sense of pride of knowing better than his guru, that then attracted, as we said in the reading, you know, that, that magnetizes all sorts of other follies, all sorts of other downward pulling things. And he ended up, you know, going down of betraying his master. But the good news is, of course, that as master said in the path, he, Swami relates this count, that he was a great prophet and he gained, Judas gained liberation. He said after 2,000 years of suffering, just in this last incarnation where he was born in India and he was able to rise above that and he was able to, to get past that, which is a very, 
you know, hopeful thing for all of us because it has a pretty hard fall, but you know, it's not forever. It's just pick yourself up. What direction are we moving? Okay, are we moving forward? Let's keep going. And certainly the sense of pride for us is it's a difficult one too. I mean, I was certainly not immune to it. I, I look back at my early times arriving at Ananda and I, sometimes I sort of cringe at uh, ways that I was. I mean, I thought, you know, I knew how to, you know, this place, how does this place operate? I mean, you know, they're not doing things right and if they'd only do it this way. And I, you know, I had some good ideas, I thought, and I started implementing them and sometimes, you know, against the wishes of the people I was working with. And thank God they had the patience and the fortitude to let me learn my lessons and go with it and casually try to insert teachings when it was possible. Say, well, you know, we do it this way. You know, maybe it's for this reason. I said, oh, yeah, okay, no, but this is better. And, well, okay, you know. And, <laughs> and that's the real, the real beauty of community, of spiritual community. It's so important when, you're, when we're fighting this delusion because when you're in it, it's almond cookies, that's it. And you know, when you're, when you're caught in a pride or a, some kind of an ego thing, it's, it's hard to get out of it. But if you have mirrors around you of other devotees who can show you, no, that's not the right way. That's not the only way to go. This is probably a better way. It helps pull us back up. And you pity people who are just in sort of the corporate world where that's the norm, where everybody's caught in their own desires, angers, infatuations, and loss of discrimination. That's just, that's normal. But thank God here, we have ways that we can show us, we can get up to a higher, a higher plane, a way of looking. And what we really need, what's the counterbalance of, of pride? It's humility. And humility, what Swami said, humility is self-forgetfulness. It's forgetting that we're encased in this little ego, that we're, we are actually looking upward, that we're looking at something higher. We're aspiring that there is another force in the universe up there. And there's a story that Master tells of, there's a saint in India who was, uh, or Guru, Guru Ramak. And he lived outside this village and he had people who would come and he would teach them. And there started to be, there's one rich man who decided that he, uh, you know, mostly because he thought it would be a nice idea to be considered holy more than he wanted to be really holy. But he got infatuated with the idea of finding a spiritual teacher. So he went and approached Guru Ramak and he came with his two servants and with his uh, wife. And Guru, he said, would you please teach us holy man? And Guru Ramak said, well, people have to, before I teach them, they have to pass a test. So, okay, yes, we can do that, no problem. We'll pass the test. So he went out to his garden and he got, he picked some bananas and he gave each of the people two bananas. He said, okay, what I, the test is, I want you to go out to the most secluded, hidden spot that you can find and I want you to eat these bananas. But when you eat these bananas, no one else can be seeing you eat these bananas. You have to eat them completely secretively. So the whole, the rich man says, huh, piece of cake. And he goes and ducks into the bathroom of a friend's house and stuffs the bananas in his mouth and comes back and to the whole man, see, I've eaten the bananas. I even ate the peels and it's all gone. <laughs> and the holy man says, oh, that's interesting that you could find so quickly a place where you are completely alone. And the servants also went out and they wandered around a little bit more and they finally found some deep, dark caves out in the woods and they went into the caves and ate the bananas and then they came back and said, yes, we were, 
we were in the cave. Are you sure no one saw you? And he said, yeah, we're in the caves. We couldn't even see the bananas. It was so dark in there. <laughs> so of course nobody could see these. They ate them. And then they waited and waited. And the, the wife didn't come back and didn't come back. And finally, at dusk, she came back in. She said, oh, great guru, I have failed in your test. I could not find nowhere where I was alone. I went into the meadows, and the flowers were there watching me and looking at me. And I went into the mountains, and the, the great mountain was there looking down at me and always sharing my experience with me. And I went into the caves. I figured, oh, they won't be here. Into the darkness of the caves when I heard a voice Am I not always with you? How can you hide in the darkness? I am the light that shineth in darkness. And a light came and illuminated my bananas. And I, <laughs> and I closed my eyes. And I said, OK, I, won't, I will ignore this light so that I can do this. And my thoughts, my own thoughts started saying, aren't we always there? Aren't we always with you? Aren't we always watching? And aren't, isn't the great knower of all things behind all these thoughts in there? So great guru, I have failed. I cannot ever be alone because this universe, I am one. I am always part of it, and there's always somebody with it. And the guru said, yes, you alone have understood what I am wanting on this test, and you shall be the guru of your husband and the two servants. So it's that humility. And I want to close with just turning the, the Gita phrase around. The, the, actually, the Bhagavad Gita, it shows us the way to descend, but it also shows us the way to come back up. So what would happen if instead of pondering on the senses, we ponder on the nature of God, on the nature of oneness, on the universe? From that pondering leads to attraction. Attraction to the love, to the joy, to the be beauty of this being that's always with us. From that attraction leads a desire, a desire to live a holy life, a desire to focus ourselves on this to the exclusion of all other things. It's an infatuation with this life that says, I no longer want all these things of the sense objects. I no longer want these distractions of worldliness, of pride, of ego, of fear, of desire. Once that desire, once that infatuation becomes strong enough, it moves us into the realm of the higher self. We are one with that higher self. And that higher self gives us a discrimination, the discrimination to say, I am not interested in this. This isn't what I want. This will not lead me to what, I, what I'm trying to do. And from that discrimination, we can leave behind all sense attachments, all sense attractions, all delusion. And we move upward into oneness, into an annihilation of the sensory of our lives, but a oneness and a total goal of our union with God. From the depths of slumbers I ascend The spiral stairways of wakefulness I will whisper, whisper God, God, God Thou art the food from thee I will taste thee and mentally say God
No matter where I go, the spotlight of my mind will ever keep turning on thee. And in the battle din of activity, my silent war cry will be God, God, God. When boisterous storms of trial shriek, and when worries howl at me, I will drown their noises loudly chanting God, God, God. When my mind weaves dreams, dreams with threads of memories on that magic cloth will I emboss God, God, God. Every night in time of deepest sleep, when my peace dreams and calls joy, joy, my joy comes singing evermore. God, God, God. In waking, eating, working, dreaming, sleeping, serving, meditating, chanting, divinely Constantly.